Hello, my name's Eric. And I'm Rissa. And this is Film Chatter. Welcome to Film Chatter Podcast, where we bring you the classics, hidden gems, cult contemporary, and more every two weeks. I'm Marissa, and I'm joined here today by... Eric. Hey, hey. (laughs) (laughs) And we have a special guest today. Do you want to say your name, special guest? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Spencer. Um, I'm from the East Coast, so it's like six hours, a little bit later. That's right. I'm so honored to be uh, be a guest on your show. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the conversation today. Yeah, no, thanks for joining us, Spencer. And Spencer, uh, tell us a little about, well, one, your uh, endangered streaming services, which is awesome, by the way. And then also, you know, how you got into films and, and why films, you know, what, what, what drew you into the, to the, you know, to the art of it and the format? Um, why, why films? Oh, wow. that's like the big question right why why movies <laughs> we're dying to know <laughs> why are you yeah why are you a movie addict um yeah yeah i don't know um i was uh a kid that grew up next door to his grandparents and my my grandfather had a huge vhs collection always went to garage sales flea market swap meets um and had just like an incredible collection international foreign um music documentaries um anything and everything that was just like kind of weird and out there um so i think i got a kind of got the bad habit from him and then just never stopped um vhs to me was like the first thing that really allowed me to sort of amass an amazing collection of films for really cheap now like vhs is like collectible and like these ultra rare things um but back in the day when i was a kid um you couldn't get rid of them uh for free no one would take them so i ended up you know cleaning out a lot of my neighborhood sort of uh collections of jerry Maguire and titanic and all those like dime a dozen ones but sometimes you find really cool ones you know and um i ended up you know getting a copy of night of the living dead in high school and really loved it and it sort of just like blew my mind and that sort of introduced me to the idea of you know started you know this is like um early 2000s so the internet and 9db was like starting to really ramp up and being this sort of collective like mega brain for film fans and so i found this idea of you know oh there's like midnight movies this is like a thing and i found like pink flamingos and all these like crazy like like what what planet was this film like created on (laughs) that to me was like yeah yeah the thing that got me really interested in in seeking out film and like having this like insatiable hunger for just things that I couldn't see in upstate New York is where I'm from originally and I mean I grew up in 99.9 percent white middle class suburbia you know not a lot going on pretty Mm -hmm. safe Mm-hmm. And I was able to, you know, descend into my basement among a movie collection and just like go to just far out places. And, you know, I, I mentioned Internet Movie Database um, before, and that was definitely like the breaking point for me just saying, OK, I like Taxi Driver. I like these sort of standard AFI top 100 films now. What's the craziest or lists that are like? 73 like far out twisted crazy alternative films and for a while 
uh, the films, a lot of the films I'm going to talk about today, I'd only seen in trailers through YouTube. Like I didn't even know they existed. And a lot of these films didn't exist in home, home movie. And you couldn't, there's no streaming. Netflix was still like a rental DVD service. So there wasn't like acquiring something like Tetsuo the Iron Man or like Bella Don't Have Sadness. Marissa and I were talking about that film a little bit. We love that It's like there's, yeah. And there's like (laughs) these things that feel like, just out of your grasp is something I think in the streaming service that we take it for granted. And a lot of the reason why I started um, Endangered Streaming is that in an era where we say, oh, everything's on the internet, everything's on Netflix. Well, what is that everything? And a lot of those everythings are very temporal. And it's, it's, it's something that like really kind of blew my mind the more I, I dug into it. So let me let me backtrack, I guess, and and talk about endangered <laughs> streaming. Sorry, that's a big question. One. No worries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love like hearing people's like film Big Bang. Like, what was the initial spark that like did it for <laughs> yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That like I call it, like film origin stories. Like, how did you do what you do now? Like, what was what was the spark? Yeah, um, I'm kind of like obsessed with that when I when I talk to people about films. Like, I don't really care about like oh, what's the co- your favorite film and like how'd you get into movies i think that's such a more interesting question yeah totally. um Agreed. because yeah fandom is infinite your favorite movie once you're done talking about you know texas james on asker um then it's done you're like okay now i know spencer's favorite movie of all time yeah but um so i initially um was a really early adopter of um movie.com and m-u-b-i sort of like really incredibly curated um, art house, experimental, avant-garde documentary, everything under the sun. And they really expanded since they first uh, came out. But um, during the first iteration, they had this awesome system in which there was 14 movies. Oh no, it was 30 movies. Yeah, it's 30 movies. And every day you get a new film to stream. But that also means that the film that's been there 30 days gets bumped off. So I started talking to my buddies and I said, there's this amazing new streaming service and it like really like puts the gun to your head to like watch that like Ukrainian like documentary <laughs> about automotive yeah. workers striking. Like yeah, yeah. stuff that I would never even think to check out. But because I felt this like almost anxiety, like a panic, like this is gonna like, this is going to disappear and maybe I won't be able to see this ever again. Um, I got to go, you know, and that's always been my attitude for theatrical films too. You know, theatrical films are only there for a certain time. Um, and certainly the subject of cult films, which you're talking about, a lot of times don't have a huge window. They may be there for two or three days. I remember I, I worked at Regal movie theaters and, <laughs> yes. um, one of my favorite action films of all time is the Raid series and that came out a few years ago. So Raid 2 came out and my theater was like, we're gonna get it, we're gonna get it. And it played for one day and it was a show and a half and it was an empty theater. And I'm like, I feel like I'm in on the secret. Like (laughs) no one knows about this movie, but I'm here. And if I'm not here present in this moment, the film doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So I think 
you know, I'm being like incredibly introspective. I've never been this, you know, self-analytical <laughs> yeah. about the- Let it ride. It's the, um, <laughs> the film chatter uh, effect. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, have, I, have so, I have so many questions for you, Spencer. I have so many, but I'm gonna let you speak. I have so many questions okay, yeah. for you though. Well, I'm, like, I'm like relating, up. I'm relating on like a hardcore <laughs> level. Right? Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. So, yeah. So the the initial idea for endangered streaming was third movie, and, and this idea that you only have a finite time to catch a flick, and uh, and especially with rare um, or like um, unusual or unheard of stuff, and and you know, you keep bringing up this word cult, whatever mm-hmm. that means now. But hopefully, <laughs> we try to define it today. Um, yeah. um, that there was an urgency to to see this, um, and. I, I think I started looking into how different streaming services um, were experiencing content loss and how basically how it's not advertised at all. I mean, they've gotten a little better and I try to do a little bit of information about that, like on, on the um, Instagram page and kind of post like, oh, like now HBO Max has a section that says last chance. Like maybe there are people more like more people like me who are interested in like what contracts uh, for films, how, how does how does that factor into how long I can watch this film? And then you go a step further into like what studio licensing, what that means in the streaming service. And then you start to pay attention. It's like movie I watched today, Soylent Green, a great cult film. Um, it's an MGM movie. And uh, a few weeks ago, Amazon acquired MGM. So maybe the reason why it's coming off this month is because mm-hmm. it's going to be on Amazon streaming. So I feel like I was always playing tag with where this movie is going to end up. So instead of saying, well, I'll eventually get to it, this idea of highlighting films to see before they're gone and then posting about how to acquire them on physical, because ultimately that's the end goal is that physical collecting physical media is kind of like the way to avoid this you're kind of like you know accounting for a lot of films going in a bunch of different places like that in itself is something that's that's truly time consuming i can only imagine because you know you just you have your major streaming services but then how many films are on some smaller streaming services or how many films are on you know, mm-hmm. some some niche ones, you know, and the turnover on that and some of that information might not be available all the time. So your your footwork is incredible on this on this service. And that's what is like one of the most mind numbing, like maddening things about this. Like I spoke about how HBO Max does a really good job advertising and mm-hmm. really good job means they have a section within a section within a section that says last chance. So if you're not looking for it, if you're going there to see Zack Snyder's like Justice League, <laughs> there's no way you're going to see any of those films that are yeah. leaving, you know? So it just, it, it's yeah. kind of a strange relationship between movie, like film literacy and it not being like readily available. Okay. So in comparison to like, you know, way back in the day when you go to a blockbuster or something, it was fair, it was uh, like on an even playing field, mm-hmm. you know? This DVD of Avatar was right next to, um, I don't even know, like something really far out, like Gummo. And it, it would be something that you'd say like, oh, okay, well, I know Avatar, but I have no idea what this is. Let me look at that. So at least there was like a, a chance, like a chance to see something that truly would blow your mind. Yes. But nowadays, 
you see like new releases on Netflix and I'm not here to demonize streaming. It is here. It's a fact. And there are wonderful streaming services. And what you're talking about with niche streaming services like uh, Fandor or uh, Movie or Shudder or um, I'm a huge anime fan. So I like BRV that shows um, Crunchyroll and, and Funimation stuff too. Mm-hmm. So there are avenues to do it, but it's way less obvious than it was, I think, when we were growing up and could see the entire preview of, of cinema offerings. So Spencer, you're a big physical media head, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's that's one of the things we talk about a lot on our podcast is like, I feel like I'm a big like physical media person <laughs> every time. Eric knows this probably to like his annoyance. I don't know. But like, I'm always bringing up, <laughs> you're not okay. I'm always bringing up the movies because I'm like, I have all these movies that I talk about on physical media. And like, some of them are not even available for streaming. So it's like, how was I supposed to watch a Swedish love story if I did not buy like the Region B, like, uh, what is it, Roy Anderson, you know, <laughs> box set? Right. So stuff like that. Like, it makes me think of stuff like that. That's why I'm such a big, physical media proponent is because what you say about the whole like there's a streaming wars is what it is yeah Yeah. and i and i hate to use this term because it's so overused and like delegitimized nowadays but Mm -hmm. when you're acquiring physical media you're acting and using curatorial methods and saying Mm -hmm. these films matter to me and if it's on my shelf you know we can like walk around and say like oh this is really interesting like oh what's this title you know um whatever and um, I was thinking of something like an interesting title. I, I can't even think of it. But um, <laughs> like, oh, uh, Bag Boy, Lover Boy. Have you ever heard of that film? No. That film is incredible. It's on Shutter right now. Bad Dude, Boy, Lover Boy. Super film? weird. <laughs> Bad. Um, what is it now? Bag Boy, Lover Boy. I believe it is. Bag anyway, Boy, it's Boy. like okay. if if um, like William Lustig, the director of Maniac. Oh. directed pink mm. flamingos Whoa. it's like it's like super new york sleazy and it's mm. incredible um but yeah nice. obviously not for everyone and that's <laughs> fine because we we're talking about cult films and the yeah. best part about cult films is that they naturally weed out the weak <laughs> <Yeah>. you know <laughs> most no of the films yeah. i'm talking about people will see the opening credits of the trailer and be like yeah, no, I'm good. I just worked a full day. I can't handle this. <laughs> Certainly not for the faint of heart. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's but my that's, favorite kind. You know, that's what gives Same them their here. that's a good yeah. edge over over you know the vast majority of films for sure. And oh, yeah. you mm-hmm. you mentioned something. So you know the contentious topic of what we're talking about with cult films. What is right. a cult film? How do you define? Oh, are we going into it? We are going into it. How oh, ni- nice segue, Eric. <laughs> Actually, we I never even said the beginning though. I never said like this is the theme of today's today's no, episode. We beat it over the head. But um yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good. We mentioned cult a lot. So folks, we're talking about cult films today. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that seems to be the big question. And uh, you know, I'll speak for for my own perspective on it. I think that this is a term that should be allowed to have different, you know, paradigms and, and to be able to shift within that. Because you talk to 10 different people, you'll get five different answers, but all of them in one way or another can be justifiably right in some way. I don't know if we can really get an objective, true definition <clears throat> of cult, but rather a collective one and one that 
is truly based around the culture of, of film, you know, conversation? Well, the way I think about cult is no opinion is final. I'm going to go out and say that there is no opinion that is final on what a cult film is like someone's someone like one person's masterpiece masterpiece might be like someone else's like Howard the Duck. <laughs> so, you know, don't hate on Howard the Duck, Marissa. No, <laughs> no, actually, I think that that, that ever belongs in the canon. <laughs> For sure. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's my whole takeaway is like, no, no opinion is final on this. No matter if someone says like, no, I know what a cult film is like, no, you don't. It's like, there's many, many ways that you could approach a cult film. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think you guys did a really good, really good job uh, kind of hitting on the head. Um, I mean, I kind of have like vague ideas or like sort of uh, motifs, I guess, if we're allowed to use the SAT word um, <laughs> about, yeah, you know, call and defining call. And it's almost like the antithesis of something that's commercially viable. Um, if it has broad appeal, it's probably not cult. Um, I mean, if, you know, if we look at the analogy of like the word cult, it, it is like sort of like in the religious context and being like a small collective of really passionate individuals. Um, mm -hmm. And there are things about this that are not okay with the, you know, the masses. Um, then those people tend to say, you know, dig even deeper into it and say like, no, this is, this is absolutely our idol to worship. Um, and I definitely fell into that um, as a kid, you know, being like someone who was like bullied and uh, not understood. And I was mm -hmm. that like too cool for everyone else. And I can handle this movie and you can. And like, mm -hmm. I was the guy who brought like copy of Cannibal Holocaust into my <laughs> high school and said like, yo, you should watch this. This is the craziest thing I've oh ever seen. Um, yeah. The teacher loved and that, still I bet dude <laughs> I, st I still stand for that film that film's a masterpiece um <laughs> cult, cult classic right there cult, cult, no cult. Yeah. yeah yeah um yeah. but yeah in general i think it's something that you know only appeals to a certain kind of you know thirst for the strange odd and yeah just the antithesis of something that has you know something that's marketable for the masses so okay I'm gonna I'm gonna be that devil's advocate a little bit because this <laughs> from uh, from the book that I have it's the rough guide to cult films. Um, they bring up a good point, and I didn't I didn't really think about it this way. Do you guys consider Casablanca a very very well known film to be a cult film? No, not Wait, for me. Because the book makes a really good case that it does, and I kind of agree with it too. Three hours, <laughs> so no one nowadays has the attention span to watch it. <laughs> yeah, um, only true cinephiles. <laughs> I know, only true cinephiles. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I guess I could see Casablanca in the same vein as like The Wizard of Oz could be considered a cult classic as well, and I the book makes a really good case for it too. It's like. Can you quote the characters? Can you quote the lines? Like, are there very, very well-known things in it that like, it's very quotable. It has, so it has that quasi like a uh, religious kind of cult like base to it where like, I could, I could see how that has acquired cult status now. It's very similar to another film that is also considered cult that maybe we wouldn't by definition consider cult, which is the big Lebowski. Because if you consider the amount of 
revenue, if you look at it this way, and the amount of revenue that it earned, it was a very fi financially successful film. And marketability-wise, it was a very successful film. And then you also look at, um, you know, the fact that it wasn't on the margins, really. It's, it's, it was actually a well-supported film. And by two, you know, the two big directors, the Coen brothers, um, the only thing that really makes it cold is the same thing that you're mentioning here, Marissa, which is like that quotability aspect and then that devoted fan base. You devoted know? fan base. Yeah. yeah. Of, all, of all these films. Yeah. Actually, Bill Lebowski, I would have considered that one a cold film. Right. For sure. But then in, you have it in, in another paradigm. It's like, oh, wait, but that's not this and that. So it's kind of like yeah. there's these, all these shifts. You, you can it, argue you know? for all of them that like it's a cold film or it's not a cold film. Like I said, yeah. and no opinion is final. So film if you can find a poster of it in spencer's gifts like <laughs> is the so i would say yeah, exactly. yeah i think it is yeah i i would put like films like you know flight club donnie darko boondock saints these are films that have like transcended cult mm -hmm. and just more of just like a film aesthetic or just like college dorm room aesthetic you know, but I won't knock the college dorm room because that's where I saw a lot of the films that I would consider cult, you know? Yeah, yeah. College right. can be an awesome time. And if you're from somewhere that, you know, I don't know, like your parents didn't allow you to watch movies and then you watch, mm -hmm. you know, Fight Club and you're like, that or Memento is another great one. It's like, that's yeah, the yeah. craziest thing I've ever seen. My issue is that some, some people decide like that is their one weird film and they're done. Mm. like mm. there's no like bridge they're just like they they saw this one film and it's like oh that's my weird film and then I like cult movies but I don't know I just can't relate to that because again it's like it's about like this hunger it's like okay what what's next what's next okay I'm into like you know uh taxi driver okay what what about like other 70s New York films okay like I, I like maniac I like vigilante I like um, taking up Pelham uh, two three one like all of these sort of like and then it becomes like a whole like swirling like chaos of film obsession and I guess that's why we're meeting today. <laughs> that, 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 that's what that I do. <laughs> that's what I do. Yeah. I, I go down a rabbit hole. I'm like, okay, what is this film? And then I go like da 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 da. Okay, then I'm at like the Driller Killer. Like you're mentioning like seventies, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 70s sleeves. I'm all about that. Perfect. So I'm just like, I yeah. need to Miss go 45. down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I need to go yeah. down that rabbit hole. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Oh, I do it all the time. Believe me. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the best part. You know, it's never just one film. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, I meet this one person and then they show me like three cool friends of theirs. Like, oh, okay. Like, I'm really interested in like, you know, this cinematographer, what else did he do? You know, stuff like that. Like, that's that's how I like found Sven Nykvist, like really interested in Bergman films. And then I looked at his filmography like, oh, he did this film with this Russian guy, Andre Tarkovsky. And then I was like, whoa, I've never seen anything like that before in my life. That's incredible. <laughs> I think I've seen God. Where am I? <laughs> <laughs> For real. Yeah. But um, yeah, Eric, I don't know. Are we ready? Are we ready? Yeah. yeah. Um, Are you jump, jump right into it? Yeah. My catchphrase is, let's jump right into it. <laughs> let's jump right into it. Um. All right. So let's jump right into it. Which film are we beginning with today? Let's uh, begin with Spencer. Since you're the guest, do you yeah, have to, to uh, introduce your first film? Let's go with you, Spencer. Cool. Awesome. So first film I'm going to talk about today 
is a Japanese film from 1977 called House. This is definitely like one of those movies that I just watched the trailer over and over and over again, probably every day when I got home from school, like in high school, every single day. And I was like, how can a film, what I'm seeing right now, not only be a cohesive film, but be available for people to go see in a theater. Like I just couldn't, couldn't, <laughs> my, just, my brain broke just looking at sort of the fast cutting and images. And that feeling didn't change when I got the Criterion DVD and I was just holding something that felt like a sacrament, you know, um, that was just like, oh my God, like the film gods have delivered this to me. And, you know, only I can handle this chalice, you know? <laughs> but um, so the story behind it's really cool. Um, so Toho, a legendary Japanese uh, studio known for, you know, Seven Samurai and a lot of like really big premiere like uh, Japanese films during that time um, were really impressed with uh, the Spielberg film, little known film called Jaws. I don't know if anybody's heard of it, but um, no. they really, no. no? Maybe nah. I should have put it as a cult title. That should have been, been your first choice. I think you should have thrown it in there, yeah. I know, yeah. So Joho really loved Jaws because everyone that was awake uh, during that time, 1975, knew what Jaws was. It was a sensational film. And I mm -hmm. love that film also. But um, they really wanted to have a Jaws film uh, for the Toho studio. Um, so a script is written and uh, basically the premise in a very Japanese uh, style was that um, a schoolgirl um, in high school gets word that her aunt has fallen ill, needs help. Uh, she enlists a bunch of her friends to come along and the house is haunted by the memory of a fallen Japanese soldier from World War II and the house uh, picks each of the school girls off one by one and literally eating them as if the house itself was the Jaws uh, shark. So yeah, obviously that makes sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that film uh, sat on the shelf, that script for about two years. And then I'm gonna butcher his name. I'm so sorry, Mr. Okay. Obayashi. Uh, yeah. He passed away two or three years ago, but mm -hmm. uh, Nobuhiko Obayashi. Um, so he was kind of like a studio guy for Toho. He shot commercials, um, was um, stunt coordinator, um, script editor, basically an everyman um, filmmaker. So he was really interested in this script and started to compile imagery for this film that would be sort of appropriate. And one of the coolest stories that I read about this film was that the initial inspiration of these sort of a general idea of inanimate objects attacking characters was when his daughter came home from a piano lesson and she had described that uh, she came home and was running and was crying and said, dad, today during my piano lesson, the, the piano bit me. And he just thought that was an incredible like way of like describing something from a child's point of view. So he adapted that sort of story into every single sequence in house. And it's one of those films that like, doesn't really do it justice to talk about plot points or synopsis. None of my films do. I think that's <laughs> sort of like the, maybe like the, the, the sort of theme of cult films in general is that they're not meant to be described, but experienced. And all mm -hmm. three of my films and certainly house do, 
is a film that needs to be experienced, um, preferably in a dark theater surrounded by strangers, preferably people that have never seen it before, because they're just going to look at everyone and say, what's going on? I don't know what's happening. Um, To give give you an idea sort of of like, you know, that same phenomenon. Last night I watched this with my family and I warned them before. I was like, I don't I haven't seen this, but this is going to be a strange one. Right. And I think about 20 minutes in, my my stepdad just gets up and he's like, yeah, this is weird. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. because Peace like out. if you're not, it, it's almost like cult films sometimes too. like take some work like on your part. It's a very participatory uh, uh, event that isn't like something you casually watch and you're like you're you're on your phone and maybe you take out the dog or whatever it's Mm -hmm. something that you need to be strapped in and paying attention because you could blank and especially with this film like filmmaking techniques change for no reason whatsoever there's a lot of allusions to like oh it's like a japanese soap opera and there's like um vaseline around the 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 film lens and it looks all dreamy and and Mm -hmm. picturesque but there's like a fake background that drives away. And there's this weird thing with a watermelon cellar and uh, he gets electrocuted. And then it's like a skeleton animation. And the cat. Yeah, and the cat. Gotta throw in the cat. Cats can open doors, but only a a ghost cat can close them. It's like, yes, within this realm, that logic, perfect sense. Yep got it <laughs> you know, it, know. It, it kind of brings to mind like the um the frida uh, there's a certain term for when you're writing and it's it's sort of just like you're just writing the first word that comes into your head and you're going and you're going and you're going and you're going and before you know it it's like you have this whole page that is just you know uh it's like free association i think that's what it's called stream of consciousness stream of consciousness there we go that's the mm-hmm. correct term um and it feels this film feels like it was that and just with filmmaking techniques a sort of stream of consciousness like you know the first the sort of like the the instinct of it is is phenomenal because i mean really they th- they throw everything here like you get everything yeah. from like the vignetting to like you know these strange like sort of um jump cuts and and it's just a treat in that way it's just you you, yeah. you it's unleashed and it, it feels yeah. so refreshing because of that yeah that's amazing too to be confronted with the fact like this is a movie there's this awesome flashback with um the soldier and the sick aunt um embracing and then uh, to show this this you know uh the degradation of the relationship and the death of him it just sort of bleeds and the film itself burns into this beautiful sort of like empty frame and you're hyper aware that, okay, like this is 1977, this is film, you know, maybe it got too hot in the projector. Am mm-hmm. I in a movie theater? Like, where am I? <laughs> and it like, it really uh. like tests you. And mm-hmm. one of my favorite sequences in the entire film has nothing to do with anything in the plot or whatever, is like, there's a phone call um, and the girls um, are descending stairs and, <laughs> the frame rate changes and it literally fucks you up it feels like you're drunk <laughs> yeah. and the first time i watched it i'm like oh my god like i thought i was having like a like a like suffering a seizure or something like oh my god i feel sick watching this this is incredible like i never had a film like affect my health like that before i just couldn't couldn't believe what i was looking at 
Beside um, possession. You guys right? know. <laughs> possession. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's exhausted. He made love all night. Yeah. You'll know what we're talking about, Eric. Yeah, you'll, you'll get there, Eric. Um, yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, what is it? Spencer, I wanted to talk about... Can we talk about the names? The names of the girls? Because yeah. they have some pretty kick-ass names. Like, yeah. I forgot some of them. But I just remember they had, like, some pretty is champ the athletic girl and it's almost like they're every every one of their names are actual like almost like typified characters they're not mm-hmm. like people they're yeah. like just like ideas like okay this person's gonna be the, the girl that eats a lot and, th- and this is the brainy <laughs> girl and it's like and oh that's where the conversation ended they weren't actually like characters they were just like ideas that are gonna be like tormented by this like cannibalistic house and yeah. that to me is incredible because the film time and time again just ignores and it, it and it's not like it's inept it's consciously going against what we think are film conventions and kind of testing you it's like oh do you know that you know this sequence of events is out of order like are you paying attention it's almost like yeah, yeah, yeah. like we we're talking about before <laughs> like the passive versus active act of watching film like it, it continually tests you and puts you through this like incredible ringer of like oh my god like this is an a normal movie over and over and over again but yeah the character names are the best for sure how about <laughs> kung fu that's probably oh, yeah, kung that's fu. probably the kung most fu. out yeah. there one that i was like well, this is awesome like kung he literally fu. fights <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and oh she was like kicking away like pieces of like the disembodied fingers at one point (laughs) and it turns into and and it jumps really effortlessly from genre to genre so when kung fu's on screen it's obviously a martial arts film at that point it's (laughs) like oh okay this makes sense (laughs) yeah her little like speed running is just like oh my god (laughs) i just i love it it's like a psychedelic uh horror film if you want to call it that yeah Yeah, but yeah yeah. it's fun and it has a a fun humor in it and I think a lot of horror films from the 70s have a great sense of humor. And it's something do. that they I don't do. think a lot of horror films nowadays really go into. Nope. And I think they're really intrinsically related. You know, humor and horror are like two, two different sides of the scales. And it's really interesting and subversive when uh, directors choose to sort of blend those two because you're like, jerked back and forth not only visually in this film but also tonally like okay like this is nice music or whatever and we may hear like a baby crying and then there's broken glass and (laughs) then there's blood coming out of the clock and then we're happy again (laughs) i don't know how to feel i feel so weird yeah do you want to give any final thoughts on on house before we move on any yeah any closing thoughts if you and I'm going to be like very like pluggy right now. So my whole thing is about streaming. So um, if you do subscribe to Criterion Collection, it is available to stream. Um, also, if you really dig House, um, there's an awesome short film that he did before House called Emotion, which is definitely really awesome and, and worth checking out. So um, if you just can't get enough of uh, Obayashi, check out Emotion on Criterion Collection as well. Awesome. All right. So the first film I'm bringing to the conversation today is Mystery Men from 1999, directed by Kinka Usher. 
I saw you raising your fist. Tell me why. Tell me. Tell me what it is about this film for you, Spencer. It's so weird, and <laughs> it was like decently popular. Like that was a film to see. Like when at least I was a kid. And then you watch them like, why is Ben Stiller here? What, <laughs> what is going on? But yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. This is, uh, that's totally the, the cult appeal of this film is you have some comedians in a superhero film that's just so unheard of, you know, for, for Hollywood's, you know, studio system. And uh, one of the reasons why I was appreciated today, you have Ben Stiller, Hank Azaria, William H. Macy and Kel Mitchell. And then like Paul Rubens too. I mean, that's just, mm. that's quite, that's quite a list of comedians. I think one of my favorites has to be Jeffrey Rush in this because uh, his, his super villainous is incredible here. Uh, but I should give some synopsis background here. So Wait, this... is Janine, Janine Garofalo in it? Yes, Not yes, that's right. Janine Garofalo oh, like as well. Janine Garofalo. <laughs> She's a great I wanna... comedian. I have a whole section just for her character. Oh, I'm my bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Must get discussed. Yes. All she's, right. She's the she's mm -hmm. honestly like the silver, you know, the the one silver mm -hmm. like moment for me in this film. Mm -hmm. Um because this film is pretty like you know corny in a lot of ways, but I still love it regardless. So this film is about a group of not so superheroes uh who are led by Mr. Furious, the Blue Raja, and the Shoveler. And they call themselves to action after Champion City's hero, uh, Captain Amazing, is kidnapped by the malevolent Casanova Frankenstein, played by Jeffrey Rush, and his disco gang. So the ironic thing, though, is that Captain Amazing, the whole thing happens because he gets cocky, because he's like, oh, I'm just, I, there's no one to beat here anymore, and I'm losing sponsors. <laughs> he's literally sponsored by, like, Pepsi and, like, <laughs> all these different brands. He's a superhero. Mm. And, like... You know he's losing sponsors, so he has to be like, "Well, I gotta, I gotta do something." And so he's like, well, "Why don't I just release this one supervillain?" Like he was pretty good. Like, <laughs> and then he ends up getting, he ends up getting kidnapped, and then you know all hell breaks loose. So go figure. But talking about like the Colts appeal of this is definitely this, um, you know, the comedian aspect. And to me, I think this film came out twenty years way too early. <laughs> in retro, in in respect to the amount of superhero films that are coming out today. I mean, I'm wondering what impact this film would have if it were released like in 2019 after the string of, you know, this this Marvel um, cinematic universe and and what mm -hmm. different things it could have done. Because I think it came out just a little too early in, to order, in order to hit those real tropes that some of the superhero mm -hmm. movies have today. This film was mostly spoofing like Batman and Robin, like those mm -hmm. the 90s films or Batman Forever, which it didn't hit as hard. I just wonder like what it would do today. Nonetheless, I think this is still such a fun viewing. Spencer, you mentioned watching this as a kid, and I actually remember having this one on DVD as well. And I think they never returned it from Blockbuster. I think that's what it was. But <laughs> yeah, this one definitely sure. fascinated oh, yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely one of those movies that, like, for some reason, everybody's, like, uncle in my neighborhood had this movie, like, on DVD, and I think it was, like, I had this weird obsession in high school with, like, those black, like, Snapcase DVDs. They were, oh, like, the those. early, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know, if the, like, I a have lot a bunch. of them were, like, mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of them were, like, early DVDs, maybe, or, like, the independent, like, Miramax DVDs, mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm pretty sure Mystery Man in its first iteration was a Snapcase one. But yeah, I don't remember a ton about this movie other than the poster, because I think the poster was in my my local video store. And then the fact that Ben Stiller was in it. So I'm so happy you brought it up. It makes me want to watch it again, for sure. That poster is really great, too, because it has like it's like the whole film is stylized as if it was kind of just like a 
kind of like a ripoff of a Blade Runner in a bit because Champion City, you look at it, it's like this digitally created town and it's just, it looks a lot <laughs> like Blade Runner, but they have these really nice, like kind of neon greenish purple lights. And that was something that always appealed to me as a kid. And, and just the look of it was really kind of phenomenal. And I think having the uh, disco gang as like the main villains with Eddie Izzard, um was really kind of clever too fun thing that i caught this time that i didn't catch as a 10 year old was actually um the uh goody mob does anybody is anybody familiar with oh, yeah. well I haven't, oh. I haven't i haven't seen this yeah. one eric so you don't, know the good don't spoil it. <laughs> it's not a spoiler i promise you. it's okay, just like okay. a random you know, sort of <laughs> trivia thing but the goody mob is in this film and they're they're recap they're re reinterpreted as the not so goody mob because they're like a super villain gang <laughs> Oh God, that's silly. Nice. The corn something ball. I definitely did not, did not catch. I'll be looking out for. Yeah, yeah. but I, I really liked what you're talking about. How this film was definitely like ten years before it should have came out, or like would make sense to even come out. Um, because I mean, Batman and Robin and Batman Forever were huge, huge box office films. Like they were definitely like cultural sensations, but not any scale to where like the marvel empire is right now and oh look at God, stuff like the success of like deadpool and like the boys the show like yeah. those like super like wink wink nudge nudge it's a superhero but like cool right um that's <laughs> totally the vibe i got when i was watching mystery man and i love the fact that it didn't take itself like crazy serious but again you cared about these people too so um, I definitely think um, that's a really, really great point to say, like, oh, I wonder if Mystery Men would, like, be really good, like, nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely, it definitely is, is um, it feels like, oh, it just missed the mark on, like, the superhero tropes today. But it's, it still makes sense in light of Batman or Robin um, in those films. Uh, one of the things that I found really interesting, too, is that, how how it was even made because this was not based on any type of popular pre-existing you know i guess property as you call them this was uh, actually inspired by a comic and it's not even a popular comic it's just like in a series of you know in a bigger series of comics and the comic's called flaming carrot and the mystery men actually <laughs> the mystery men actually are led by a man who has a carrot head that's on fire <laughs> <laughs> of course because uh, of course yeah of course but it sticks to that whole thing of like you know they're not really superheroes and you know you get the moral of the story which is basically you know like they they anybody can be a superhero right they just had to believe but um i wouldn't want to judge this film for something that it's not and to me overall i think this is a fun viewing experience when you let your guard down for it not to mention you have gene garofalo as the bowler who brings so much in dare I say integrity to this film because of how well she does this part like it's so good she is hilarious uh she, the bowler is basically she has like a bowling ball as her superpower but the cool thing is that she actually is kind of like a superhero where everybody's not everybody's got these made-up powers which I'll get into in a second but her actual uh, bowling ball has the head the skull of her dad in it which gives it this like magic mobility and like it, it, it is actually pretty threatening Whereas you have like Mr. Furious, his superpower is just to get really angry. <laughs> and the shoveler who, you know, his superpower is just, he can use a shovel. <laughs> and then the spleen, of course. Mm, Paul Rubens. Yeah. Pull my finger. Mm -hmm. He can, he can fart really loud. Um, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in, in, you know, overall it was, 
I, I still think it's pretty funny and you know definitely don't take it too seriously and just enjoy William H. Macy as the shoveler hitting people with a trowel because that's his like <laughs> little secret weapon is a trowel. Um, you'll have to rent this one either at your local video store or online on YouTube. But or purchase it, it. Or purchase it on one of those on, uh, physical black, media. On one of the, the black uh, snap ones that oh, you the know, snap case. The um, the snap case. Look at yeah. Goodwill. It probably is there. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. It's in your dollar tree bin. Yeah. <laughs> on to our next film my film <laughs> dun, dun. I, i'm gonna yeah dun 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 all right i'm gonna go with after hours 1985 directed by who am i gonna say the good Martin, old martin, martin scorsese little <laughs> <laughs> martin scorsese so um spencer you haven't seen this one or no i have not seen this one no okay okay no. so i i am gonna talk about it I was Honestly, confused with four rooms for some reason. I don't know why. Oh, okay. No, pretty pretty different from that one. But um, I'm going to talk about this, like, honestly, like, brief, because you said something earlier, which you brought up a good point about, like, cult films. Like, I don't I don't feel like I want to talk about it too in-depth because I, I really will spoil the film. Because that's the whole, like, fun of it is, like, yeah, this film needs to be experienced. Oh, would you say Eric? Trailer. There's like a guy in the back of a taxi cab or something. And he's yeah. Like, okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 So, um, basically, should I give a brief synopsis here? Just a brief synopsis. <laughs> the infamous. So we have our infamous line. So like that's that's kind of mine. Just, just bear um, with us. <laughs> bear with us. So I'm just gonna read this out because I can't I can't just do it off the cuff. So um okay. So when uptight word processor Paul Hackett's last $20 bill flies out of the cab window, he becomes stuck in a nightmarish Soho after hours. He meets a colorful cast of characters and spends the rest of the night trying to return home. It's literally the basis of the movie. <laughs> Can I just say that that sounds like a that sounds like a Greek kind of Odyssey type of synopsis based. Oh, yeah. Like, like totally. Like There's Homer's such an Homer's yeah, Odyssey. like Homer's Odyssey. Such an inspiration from that. It's totally like what I what I noticed from it. I just, saw this, yeah, two days ago, and I'm like, that stuck out to me so much. Like, just put Homer in Soho, New York, in the '80s, and you you have After Hours. Totally. I'm in. I'm in. That's what you have. So, um, but yeah, we have the great Griffin Dunn as Paul Hackett, Rosanna Arquette. We got some honestly great cast here with the '80s uh, cast. So, like Rosanna Arquette is Marcy Franklin. Uh, Eric, we have Linda Fiorentino. Bridget. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's Kiki Bridges in here. Very, very wild role, wouldn't you say? Very. I love her hairdo, though. Her hairdo is wonderful in this film. And her bondage looking. Um... <laughs> Not a fan of that, but it's still pretty cool. <laughs> I'm, a fan, I'm a fan of that. I'm a fan of her bondage look. It's pretty awesome. Um, I'll say that. But yeah, so we have uh, Terry Garr. We have Captain O'Hara, John Hurd. We have uh, what is it? Um, Cheech and Chong. Oh yeah, that caught me off guard. Cheech and Chong. I know. Do they play uh, yeah. themselves or separate characters? I, I in a know. way. In a way, they play I, yeah. themselves, but I they 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 play uh, Neil and Pepe. <laughs> that's their whole. Okay. Um, that's their whole thing. Is like they uh, what 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 would you call like their roles in the movie though? It's like they're not they're they're not like thieves, because remember when Paul Hack is like. 
<laughs> he's like, where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? And they drop like, <laughs> they drop the TV and all this stuff because he thinks that they're robbing. Um, but, but they are in a way, but they're, they're like are, delivery. They're like delivery. Yeah, like delivery pickup with... people. But like, it's like so funny because that's like a running joke throughout the whole movie yeah. is that like, Paul Hackett always like he always like seals like Neil and Pepe like in the van and he's like wait Neil Pepe I didn't know I didn't know like, <laughs> like that they're not like thieves or whatever um that like uh what is it um Linda Fiorentino uh Lauren Linda Fiorentino's character like she gave him the the statue let's just say yeah. it's not short on irony whatsoever no okay, good. no yeah. no but yeah like a good gag <laughs> totally yes some really yeah good so I don't, yeah, I don't know, Eric, like I've seen this movie like a billion times, but I want to hear your thoughts on it since you just saw it for the first time. Well, okay. I always, you know, sort of do this. I think we know this by now, Marissa. Like I, mm -hmm. I love to hear what one of my favorite critics and a little bit of a basic, you know, thing e here, Ebert? but about yeah, I, I love to hear Ebert's thoughts. I just love to hear yeah. him. I, I, cause I can usually resonate a bit with them. And mm -hmm. he pointed out the Hitchcockian aspect of this film. And once he did that, I was like, Bing. I was like, I, I get why I loved it so much when I was watching it, because uh, it's got that unrelenting tension to it that a good Hitchcock film does. And it's twisted to be a Martin Scorsese. Film. It's his picture. So it's, mm -hmm. it's his film. So mm -hmm. you kind of get this best of both worlds. That is so you're just watching like a mix of two great auteurio styles like that to mm -hmm. me is, is enough to be like, OK, this is a phenomenal like watched uh, film experience, uh, not to mention the cast is is so incredible. Um, and mm -hmm. it's just like because you're basically watching a very shitty day you know happened to an or paul hackett yeah basically yeah the light yeah <laughs> basically like the uh or no shitty nights or shitty nights shitty nights because yeah shitty nights um because detail. it takes yeah yeah <laughs> it takes place all throughout the night um okay yeah um okay so you see it that yeah you see it that way with like a hitchcockian aspect to it but there's yeah. so much more like there's you, i know there's so much more to experience I don't know, like Spencer, like this is the ultimate cult film for me, truthfully. Like awesome. it's, a, it's as culty as it gets for me. Like it has all the weirdness in mm. place where like every little thing, even from the beginning of the movie, wouldn't you say, Eric? It's like Paul Hackett, he's trying to explain this boring ass word processing job to um <laughs> to that guy. What is it? Oh God, Bronson Pinchot, mm -hmm. the one, um, the one who is in Beverly Hills Cop. Um, he's trying to explain this like job to him so serious in his role too he's like this is what you do and this is what you punch in and blah 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 and the Bronson Pinchot character is like oh yeah like you know I'm actually only going to be here for a while like I just want like a, a whole you know like he's like talking about like I, I actually like what this is like a step to get like another like job or whatever and then <laughs> but during this moment like what like Scorsese does is this whole like role is that Paul Hackett's character, he's like looking across the room, like seeing like basically like the meaning, <laughs> the pointlessness of his job. Like it's so meaningless. And like, so like, I think he's just like tuning that guy out, but like stuff like that, like little oddities like that. And then him going to the cafe and he's reading, what is it? Uh, Tropic of Cancer is that book that Henry yeah. Miller book. Yeah, <laughs> he's reading the book and then he notices um, Marcy and then they have their whole thing about like the weirdness of that. They have the whole connection between like Henry Miller 
and then like they they start talking and then Marcy leaves and he goes to like the the guy who's like in the cafe he's like can I borrow a pen and like the guy does like some <laughs> some kind of like he does some kind of like dancing twist like everything is so odd mm. every every single beat like every single character also is so odd like the whole Marcy Marcy and Paul like oh my god it really but, makes you question in your own life how connect how how much of my life is, is there somebody that's pulling my strings mm. right now or pulling the strings around me uh, yeah. which goes back to the deeper meaning and which you can kind of guess from you know paul's original dilemma in the beginning of like this is all pointless like it's sort of like uh mm -hmm. he goes on this journey in a way i'm not going to give it away i promise but he's yeah. kind of he, he <laughs> thank you some, there's somebody yeah, yeah. pushing him to be like you know, you need to go through this, you know, and it, that's really, that's really quite a spectacular journey that he does go on too. And one that you really, it just blows your mind how well thought out it is really. Well, mm. I have like a, I have a whole fascination with like films like this. And maybe this movie is the one that like spawned it, but like movies that take place explicitly in the night mm. and how, mm. and like, I feel like I've experienced that myself too, like just being here in LA in the weirdness of the night I know like this movie is a um it's like an east coast it's a new york based film but like just the weirdness of the night there's something very intriguing about that because there's a lot of weird shit that goes on in the night <laughs> like let's be yeah. real yeah so yeah. I think this movie what I love about it so much is that it captures that weirdness to a t and but like I don't know Eric wouldn't you say it's kind of it's a kind of an oddity for Scorsese oh it's by, like yeah by far yeah yeah, I was going to say, how does this sort of fit in with his filmography? Because Scorsese is praised for making like, oh, this is a very Scorsese film. But when I watched the trailer for this and you had mentioned like, oh, I'm going to talk about After Hours. I was like, this looks like, I don't know, a John Landis film. Like, this is like mm. so ridiculous and like madcap. And um, it just like almost, yeah, it's like or like a Terry Gilliam, like that really weird sort of like. Mm -hmm. of course that would happen like sort of <laughs> surrealist um intentional um yeah sort of like bizarre like you're saying like the the, the um what am i trying to say like the the, the homer the epic journey like this character mm -hmm. is put through like these series of tasks and say like okay like you're meant to do this it looks hard it's going to be crazy and you're going to think am i being watched as this like candid camera but like something needs to happen and i don't really see that from scorsese's other films like scorsese's characters are super sure of themselves and it's the wor world that often tells them otherwise yeah but this film kind of seemed like the inverse of that and maybe that was intentional maybe he just wanted to make something that was sort of you know non-scorsese well yeah yeah and no, you brought up a good point um because like the history of this movie actually is pretty is pretty weird because what happened was after the whole, um, what was it, Paramount with The Last Temptation of Christ, they abandoned that. Scorsese was just like, I want something to work on. So he got the script. He got the script for this movie. And he's like, I'm going to make this movie. Now, I actually read the script before. It is just so, I mean, there, there's there's a lot that was changed, but like, it's just fucking weird. Like, <laughs> so it's just, it screams that like, I'm like, this is so not Scorsese, but somehow it works, you know? Mm -hmm. Somehow it's like, somehow it's that like 80s Scorsese oddity that just works like uh, you know I, I love like um the king of comedy from him the color of money like those are some of his I feel like 
when when you when you say Scorsese, those are not titles that come to mind. I even feel like After Hours wouldn't come to mind. But to me, like these are honestly some of his best works. It's mm-hmm. these 80s oddities that like that stand out the most to me. I yeah. think I think what ties it to Scorsese as a as you know and his style is that this film feels actually deeply religious in a way. I think there mm. is there is a there's there's a conversation with could, God happening. Yeah, you could you say know? that for sure. Yeah, because and, there is one there is one moment. I'm not going to say the moment, but there is a moment where he does do mm. something in that vein. So yeah, I get what you're saying. And the you know, cool. Scorsese's yeah. background, you know, growing up in the in the sort of Italian Catholic, you know, mm. uh, world, I think that that just makes too much sense. Like that now that I'm seeing it that way, it's like oh, like this actually makes a lot of sense for Scorsese. I think he he found that common thread to his life in there, uh, both in a you know like present sense because like you said, as he was going through the passion um and all that you know crap behind that you know he wanted to work on this but also you know i think that it very much comes from a place of like you know his childhood and and what he saw and 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 growing up in a catholic life like that so pretty phenomenal view yeah no basically yeah for sure for sure and i just um I think this movie captures it's one of the great like we talk about like you know seven no sorry sorry seven, well like 70s 80s because it still is around that like uh of like grimy sleazy New York it captures that wonderfully I think it it like uh it belongs in that like gritty sleazy like canon of like great films especially like Soho New York so Perfect. but yeah I'm no in. I'm <laughs> yeah, in. I know. Do we have it. to sell you, really, Spencer? I think you're gonna <laughs> say watch no it. more. I'm in. Say no more. Um, um, but yeah, I just I've seen this movie so many times. So I just want to say like it's one of my favorites, if not my favorite, Scorsese, and that might be bold to say that, but I'm gonna say it. Wow. Um, definitely. So, um, I told Eric this, not that he will be shocked anymore, but I'm actually gonna see it on 35 millimeter. Woo-hoo. Very cool. We're just at- a little a little jealous. <laughs> it's actually i'm gonna see it at the new beverly cinema which is um, very cool yeah, very tarantino, jealous tarantino cinema i've never been there before so i was so fucking excited at midnight awesome midnight after hours cool. after <laughs> of course <laughs> so yeah my uh my second pick was uh daisies from 1966 um so this film is again incredible it's like the most punk rock chick film from the 60s that like this should be like everybody's favorite movie like nowadays like i feel like what the filmmaker and i'm gonna butcher her name i'm so sorry vera chicka uh, chick talova chai talova i don't know no, that's um, fine <laughs> she that's deserves right. better than my butchering <laughs> oh my god i'm so sorry vera but um <laughs> dude it's like the most punk rock film done czech style it's a film from the czech republic um, the the way i found out about it was again like imdb 73 films you've never heard of like one of those lists and i know we keep name dropping criterion but it's, it's serious that their content was like pretty much the most accessible thing like if you lived in a town with a barnes and noble you could find world-class international cinema without having an art house like i grew up in binghamton new york and there was no art house to be found i had to drive an hour to ithaca and in high school that like yeah i did do that a lot but like if i wanted something now like i could go and buy a box set called pearls of the uh Mm -hmm. czech new wave Mm -hmm. and it had five or six films that each one of them blew my mind and again it's like 
a common theme with all three of the films I chose was I'm looking at this film. It's like, where did these people come from? What planet did they crash land onto Earth to deliver this film to me? Because I feel unworthy about how cool this is. <laughs> and right from the get-go, um, there's this incredible tracking shot where, and again, I'm like a film process nerd, film preservation archive nerd. And I didn't understand this. I saw this in high school and didn't, it just looked trippy and cool. But so the three layers of color film sort of like bleed back and forth. And you, it, uh, it's this like reverse tracking shot from a train. So you go through a train yard and it's, it's kind of sped up and the shutter speed and things I didn't have the vocabulary for at the time, other than the fact that I was looking at this and saying, this is so cool looking. Um, and again, we, we said this a few times, it's like impossible to just say like, okay, this movie is about X, Y, and Z. And like, now you get the movie. Like, this is definitely another film that you just like feel, you experience. So basically the, the skinny of this film is that two girls, um, they're kind of young, there's no descriptive of like their names or their age or anything. Yeah. They're just two young women that are just like fed up with the trappings of capitalistic materialistic society and choose to say, you know what, if capitalism and materialism and Western ideas are all about excess, we're going to see how far we can go with that. Let's see if there is an end to excess. So there's scenes where they tease rich men in restaurants and um, start drinking a lot and they're throwing food and just creating like these disruptions in these very high class sort of like proper settings or they're like swinging from chandeliers or just like creating a ruckus and being a terror like this film is just so celebratory of like human life and just it's it just is again it's like a kickflip in a movie like the whole time it's so <laughs> much fun to watch and you're just like you're having an incredible time the entire time you're watching it um but yeah they're just like starting like just a ruckus everywhere they go and then abruptly there's like this there's a shift in the film where they enter this like surreal like mod 60s interior where it's very architectural and very still and almost like a mosaic and like a like a painting and yeah, again, there's a, I guess I have like a fascination with like extreme tonal shifts mm -hmm. in films <laughs> that you get like really like, okay, like we're, we're partying with these girls or having a good time or whatever. And then like, whoa, this other film just like crashed. It's like that meme with the two trains. Like you get used to one thing <laughs> oh, yeah, and then yeah. you're just like blindsided by another. Mm -hmm. So it never, never lets you like feel relaxed or just like, it never allows you to be sedentary in your movie watching and I think that's what I love most about it so mm -hmm. I mentioned that um this film was in a box that called pearls of the Czech new wave so uh Czech new wave like somewhere we mentioned uh, French new wave there's these group of filmmakers that that really made headway in finding something that was very atypical in what was being presented um so a director that was part of this at probably a lot of people do know is Milos Forman. So mm -hmm. he is known for, you know, his Hollywood films, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He directed Hair. He also directed this awesome movie called Fireman's Ball, which I love absurdist mm -hmm. films. And this is basically like a film where 
a bunch of firemen gather in this hall for like some sort of fundraising thing and for whatever reason they can't get out and they mm-hmm. that that's the whole film like they <laughs> one thing after another for some reason it's kind of like that um oh what is that Bunuel? exterminating angel yes. yeah the this game of mine. Mm-hmm. oh my god i love films that are like well why don't they just leave it's like <laughs> it's, no no you can't <laughs> that that's the rule yeah you can't. yeah so so what happens then you know they start breaking the pipes and drinking the water yeah yeah <laughs> but it has really. a yeah and it's cool that uh you you had brought up in well because that same spirit that's sort of like what's gonna happen i don't know let's see what find out that spirit is very much related to daisies and a lot of the filmmakers in check new wave so this film is also um i think it's streaming on hbo max yeah for whatever reason yeah so definitely check out (laughs) daisies check new wave on hbo max (laughs) that's hilarious isn't there like a isn't there like a shot where like the girls like only have their heads Mm-hmm. Like yeah, yeah. Okay, I was like, similar to what happens in house, like these oh, cut yeah. out oh. like, yeah. collage, the cut like, out. sort of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, love, I love that because it's like it still has like the film quality to it, but it's mm-hmm. like you know they're like they're cut out and yeah. I don't know. I guess you could like make a case for that. There's some maybe like a theory behind. I don't really know, but like it's just it's so cool. I love that stuff. Like, well, I think it that's a really really good observation, and that both house and daisies have this quality and I think cult films in general have this quality that you're hyper aware that it's a film and Mm. and you kind of brought it up too Eric in after hours and talking about this like authorship and saying like someone has crafted this by hand everything is intentional it may seem far out or abstract or whatever but there are reasons why the things are happening and even if it doesn't have a reason that's the reason in a sense <laughs> the sort of random absurdity of it so i think like the like the hand cut out film that's that's present in daisy's in-house kind of lends to that as well and saying that film as a craft and things that are considered maybe cult films are things that are made from the blood sweat and tears of craftsmen and women mm-hmm. they're handmade films because totally. no one else will do it for them totally mm-hmm. Yeah. And I a lot know. of people, I mm-hmm. think there's just like a spirit of independentness in that too. Not necessarily the independent, what they call the independent genre, but like, you know, that spirit of like, I'm going to do it all, you know, God, you know, the only thing standing in my way is, is, you know, do nothing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it gives no. it that, it gives it that, you know, one of a kind uniqueness. I love it. Actually it ties into, you know, my next film actually, because oh, I think this is perfect. one of those that's also like that, you know, against against the all oh, grains I think against I know all which odds. One you're doing. So my second film today is Buffalo '66, uh, released oh, in yeah. 1998. Yes, directed <laughs> by Vincent Gallo. Okay, this one is uh, was something. So I saw Marissa this after I watched it. Um, it was a film that I just couldn't stop thinking about. Right, it's it's just in in my head from both a production standpoint and also just the experience of watching the film, because there's, there's a, there's a part of me that it's almost like a conflict inside me because, um, and I'll go into a little bit more about like the ethics of, of making films and, and why that still kind of makes me feel kind of uneasy about it. But 
there was a part of me that's just like, wow, this is this is a one of a kind, that one of a kind signature film from somebody, you know, it feels handmade like that. That is just an incredible experience. But to give some background about this film, this film is about uh, Billy, who was just released from prison and he hesitatingly enters the old world that he grew up in in Buffalo, New York. Uh, he attempts to reconnect with his parents, uh, his mother, who really only cares about the Buffalo Bills football team and literally nothing else. <laughs> and his father, a man who's like so detached from his family, save for a few moments of, you know, incredibly intimidating frustration. Mm -hmm. uh, he, Billy lies to them that he and his fiance, who's totally made up, are in town to visit. And in order to appear legitimate, he actually kidnaps a woman named Layla at a dance studio and forces her to be his pretend wife. So this film was written by Vincent Gallo and along with Alison Bagnell, who's actually given credit. I thought it was just Gallo. It's just him on the credits, mm -hmm. um, but she's given credit on IMDb and it includes Christina Ricci, Ben Gazzara, the, mm. the wonderful Ben Gazzara, ben um, mm -hmm. Angelica Houston as well. Who's also a wonderful, um, and small performances by Mickey Rourke and Rosanna Arquette. <laughs> so we have a no, <laughs> Mickey Rourke's in this for like a scene, and that's awesome. <laughs> oh, but, <laughs> but Rosanna Arquette. So we have a, a little after hours. Yeah, we're we're gonna actually keep having more crossover with my other film. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Rosanna gets awesome. Yeah, um, she is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think honestly, this uh, this is a cult film because of the artistic engine behind it. Vincent Gallo, I think this this film is almost inseparable from his identity um, because you realize how <clears throat> strangely autobiographical it is. And now I don't want to give the idea that Vincent Gallo is the character in the film, and he definitely does not want to give the impression either because having seen the dozen or so interviews that he's done about this film, it's clearly not about him. Nonetheless, it is based around his real life parents. And in fact, the scenes where he goes and visits his parents are actually in his real home in Buffalo or um, in the suburbs of Buffalo, <clears throat> which is a phenomenal you know, thing to watch because I think, you know, you look at Angelica Houston and Ben Gazzara who play his parents, and they fit in like, you know, like a glove in that, in that, in that environment. It's so strange to me. There's this really wonderful, you know, it looks almost like it's an off the cuff moment where the shot centered around the dinner table and Layla, who's played by Christina Ricci, uh, is in the center and you have uh, Billy's parents on one on each side and you see Angelica Houston watching the game and she's just got this face on her like this, this just intensity of like because she's watching an old game and to not spoil the film about why this game matters so much but basically this game was the starting point in a way of the whole entire course of the film because it has a lot to do with billy's upbringing and and his life as a you know living in a bills fan family but she's got this intensity on her and it's she fits so well in that scene it's in, it's so incredible these performances are wonderful um but to talk a little bit about uh, Vincent Gallo as the artist, uh, he's really kind of like one of the most, one of the more neurotic artists is that artists that you will ever encounter. I mean, interestingly enough, he's called Wes Anderson and Spike Jones career men. He considers himself a libertarian. Um, 
he's mm. known to be like verbally, you know, sort of abusive on sets. And the reason why I bring this up is because, um, as I was saying before, a little bit of conflict in liking this film so much as I did, it's almost like, you know, sort of what's going on behind the scenes that you just you just don't necessarily agree with, if that makes sense, uh, particularly in Christina Ricci's situation in which she was kind of forced into some, let's just call them precarious situations um, in this film. But nonetheless, she's a, she's a stellar moment in this film, you know? So it's if you're watching this film for the first time and, you know, you don't know anything about the, the background of the film or like maybe just who Gallo is as an artist, you might think, okay, this is a wonderful film. But for me, I, I've, I've always had, I've had that dilemma now that I've looked into that of like, oh, I love this film, but, you know, at the same time, there's this, you know? So no, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think mm -hmm. that's also very, very common within a lot of cult films is that, there's some sort of like mystique in the, the process of making it or like some sort of like cultural baggage that's like associated with the film. It's like, oh yeah, Vincent Gallo is that guy that will like tell you to fuck yourself on like Instagram <laughs> if you like go into his DM and will yeah. respond. Like he's that sort of guy. Yeah, yeah. Or like a lot of people just associate him with the uh, Brown Bunny. The Brown like, Bunny. The film, yeah, with Close of Any. Um, and just saying that like, he is his art like there's no separating it all but yeah i'm stoked you picked buffalo 66 because uh as an upstate new york kid you know <laughs> that film was like if you're like an arty movie dude from upstate new york that is like your that's your <laughs> life that's your identity <laughs> i'm so happy that you i'm so happy that you connect to it in that way because you bring a perspective obviously maybe me and marissa wouldn't have as much yeah right? like you connect we to this know, film yeah. sort of like on a yeah. local level which is which is wonderful yeah, yeah a, a lot of the the setting of Buffalo, New York, just like the, the ice barren, cold, bitter coldness and like being like auspiciously close to penitentiaries also like your entire life is just like something that it is just like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've been there like that looks familiar. And it, it, it adds to the authenticity for sure for me. Um, and it makes total sense that that Vincent Gallo would go there. And, yeah. and and shoot like in his childhood home totally. i mean he's the king of going there so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. um but yeah yeah eric you wanted to talk about what is it the art and the artists um, yeah and, and yeah. so the question the question i had and if you you know you watch this film for the first time and you you read a little bit about gallo is like you're like okay how do you separate the art from the artist because in this film it's almost impossible it seems like to separate mm -hmm. the two um you see that in a lot of the of the practices and the, and the filmmaking techniques that Gallo has. He actually had an interesting statement about this film because, um, you know, when talking about you know his his the way that he made this film, it's sort of like he he didn't really care about the crew because he thought that no matter what happened, it would come out the way that he had wanted it to come out. Right, like this autorial. Um, authority that that's just won't get silenced right and so you know it's 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 interwoven into each other to the point where uh that's why it feels strangely autograph autobiographical to me um nonetheless i, I actually kind of looked at this film from a howard hawks quote perspective which howard hawks is quoted as saying a good film is three good scenes and no bad scenes to me i thought that this film actually was a really great example like a really great way to to kind of perceive this film for me because there was no lull i i thought it was a fantastic experience in that way i mean one of my favorites has to be 
the bowling alley scene and mm. that moment where a spotlight comes on Christina Ricci, you know, a totally off mm-hmm. the cuff moment. Um, she's just tap dancing, you know, sort of beneath a spotlight to King uh, to a King Crimson song and how strange that is, but you you understand that it's it's such a heightened heightened moment, you know. And that's what films one of the one of the things that films do best is they heighten those small moments, especially directors who are privy to that. Just see this for Christina Ricci, honestly, if I have to take away anything from this, because there's not enough kind words for her effort and performance in this. Um, to kind of settle this thing about art, art and artists in a way, um, Christina Ricci has a great quote about Gallo in which she says, you know, it's unfortunate about the film that people wouldn't want to watch it because I think people have definitely shied away from seeing those movies because of the way he's presented himself in the press and stuff. She says, but I've worked with tons of people who have all kinds of different behaviors and you really have to look at the end of the day at what did I create? What was I a part of? And I think that that's what's going to last and and what's really going to be important. And um, I think she she encapsulates it beautifully. Um, maybe it doesn't do everybody justice, but I think it it gets to the point about what we leave, what what it's like watching, you know, so film so closely tied to an artist. Um and this film really challenged my way of ingesting a film. So uh, I definitely recommend, you know, check this out. It's available right now on Amazon Prime and Tubi. Um, so go see this one. It's definitely worth your time. All right. My next film is Crash, the good mm-hmm. one. Uh, 1990. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to ask. Yeah, the good kind. Uh, 1996 from uh, David Cronenberg. Um, so is this on Pornhub? Spencer, do you know? Um, I think this is like too critically acclaimed to be on Pornhub, honestly. I think Cronenberg oh, okay. would be flattered. I think he would, <laughs> he would look at that and say like, yep, yeah, that makes sense. Um, it just, it, it feels like it would be because like considering like you said about like sexploitation, like this, this is not a sexploitation film per se. It's just like, right, yeah. I don't know, like, what do you want to call it? It's a, it's literally about, it's a movie about like fetishes, about basically car crashes and how basically it's saying like people equals cars sex equals crashes so mm-hmm. starting off that so i'm gonna i'm gonna go into the synopsis um just to set you off um after surviving a brutal car wreck commercial director james ballard finds himself slowly descending into a fetishist fetishistic underworld of scarred omnisexual car crash victims who find metallic collisions as a sexual turn-on and a jolting life force they come to crave. Sounds like a good Sounds time. Sounds awesome. Yeah, I know, I know. Like, it's like, <laughs> so a, like a porn parody of Transformers. So like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Basically, basically. And we have some, like, a killer cast, of course. So we always have the um, the one who's always in, like, sli- he plays, like, slimy roles, um, James Spader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he always plays a slimy role, but like here he's uh James Ballard. I love James Spader though. Um so then we have like Deborah Carr Unger, uh Elias Cotiers, um and then we have Holly Hunter and then we have Rosanna Arquette. Of course, that's the con- <laughs> <laughs> That's the connection. So, but yeah, I want to know like you guys have have you guys uh, seen any like Cronenberg films? So my default, when everybody says like, who's your favorite filmmaker? Mm-hmm. I always say David Cronenberg, but I've never seen Crash, which is crazy. I right? know you shocked me <laughs> when you were like, I haven't seen Crash. And I was like, I feel like yeah. it would, I feel like it's right up your alley. Yeah, um, I know. Uh, Videodrome, uh, Videodrome, The Brew, Dead Ringers, like 
blew my mind okay so you've seen like, dead ringers you said you've yeah, seen yeah yeah oh yeah. my god and so i okay. love um oh what's the uh um the uh stephen king adaptation he did um the zone or something the dead, or... Zone? dead zone dead zone yes dead zone. thank okay. you there we go that one rules too but yeah oh, okay um i love i even love brandon cronenberg's son stuff too oh um, uh, possessor yes and, okay uh, antiviral have you seen that no Ooh, <laughs> <wild>. <laughs> yeah i'm actually see um, i haven't watched cronenberg but i'm saving him for halloween is that a good idea or should i just do it now no i think that's um, a good idea yeah that's a good idea yeah, yeah. why not i mean he does straight up horror like studio horror really well obviously mm-hmm. but he also does like really weird sci-fi stuff too like existence with jude law that oh film my is i've never seen that one but I've been, wa- I've been wanting to see that one. Oh wow yeah yeah that's like uh like these organic like muscle organisms that you plug into your body and you can play like this game it's wild <laughs> whoa yeah, the premise yeah. sounds like really i know i i'm probably just gonna buy it honestly because i'm just like i already yeah. feel like i i know existence I'm gonna, rules um, yeah yeah but um, and Dead yeah, Ringers blew my mind. I was gonna um, say Dead Ringers is like one of my favorites. So you're familiar. You're familiar. You're familiar with yeah, like Cronenberg yeah. and how he rolls. Um, that's mm-hmm. why I feel like you would really like this one, Crash. I know. It's, it's just, just and it's another one of those things that are on like craziest films ever, um, and also like super critically acclaimed, right? It, super critically acclaimed. Yeah, I like think it did it, really like, well at Con. A Con. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Ebert. Ebert even gave it like really good like high ratings like um yeah but that's like that's Cronenberg right there it's like sophisticated like he knows his material very well so it's like yeah for some reason like he's the horror (laughs) director that a lot of critics would be like this is like the dude who's gonna make horror he's like Hitchcock for like the 70s 80s 90s yeah no basically and so like this movie it's like i'm not since you guys haven't watched it i don't want to go too much into it because like that would really spoil a lot of like the fun to it but mm-hmm. let's just say yeah like the car crashes like they get off people and there's this whole like underground of like people into like basically basically robotic lust is pursued to the point of exhaustion mm. <laughs> no pun intended into but yeah too. yeah and so <laughs> I think I got your pun. Yeah. The, okay. the rules. <laughs> <laughs> I try. Um, but yeah, so, but yeah, it's Cronenberg. So, you know, if, especially you saw Dead Ringers. So it's like, it, go there. when it hits, it, it goes there and it keeps going there. Um, mm-hmm. And just, oh my God. Yeah. Fuck. It just, some scenes really are just like, ah, you know, because with the body horror, you know, he plays with the body horror and like mm-hmm. the car crash victims and like their, their wounds and their scars and all that stuff so it's like Cronenberg to the max there but yeah really good makeup really good acting um I told Eric though I was just like I don't know if I like necessarily do I love this movie I, you know I don't know that's hard to say I love Cronenberg I, I respect him as a director but like man like this movie like I mean it left me pretty cold like even like you know car <laughs> cars are yeah. cold and like that's I guess that's but like that's the intent of it is that this movie will leave you cold because it's like these people literally they can only get off sexually like through car crashes mm-hmm. and they keep pursuing to the most to the most to the to the most extent so it's like at what cost you know is it and, cold as in like a materialistic feeling of cold like like 
finding your love in like you know diamonds and jewelry kind of cold thing where it's just like it's because like everything is so empty for them yeah like they they need it like so it's like sex is like whatever to them car crashes though whoa that's taking it to the max now so it's like Mm. they're trying to find what more can they get like what more to the you know can get them off and they keep so it's like the constant craving right and like constant craving will ultimately lead to what like dissatisfaction so it's like they're craving they're craving they're craving and you know can Mm. it kill can it kill them i don't know I don't know. So it, it kind of goes there. So it's like this constant craving and, and all that stuff. And he shows this very seedy world and where people get off doing these crazy car crashes and whatnot. But yeah, at what point, what, what point does their like turning, you know, does their, um, yeah. Like, does it, the, their climax, is that going to go away? Mm, no. Interesting. Yeah. So it's like a constant craving of like what gets them off okay so, mm-hmm. yeah it reminds me of um that slavo zizek that uh that philosopher his um mm-hmm. pervert's guide to cinema have you seen that documentary mm-hmm. no oh, no he has a really cool um documentary where he uses um psychoanalytical processes to talk about um one of the examples is vertigo he talks about hitchcock a ton so mm-hmm. you would probably love it Eric. um and the idea in vertigo where he has this line that's great and i think it's a lot what you're talking about is the idea of fantasy is that it's unattainable but once you attain what you fantasize about it becomes horrific and it like is the exact opposite of what you want like the the whole get of fantasy is that it'll never happen you can only imagine in your mind but to actually actualize it is where horror comes into play oh so Mm -hmm. interesting okay yeah 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 no that's basically what what crash is about it's like this constant pursuing and uh at what cost though you Mm. know because that that craving never ends but yeah no i have the i have the arrow video so um highly recommend picking that one up comes with a lot of shit on there so yeah awesome definitely added to the list um so back to spencer right cool all right um so as soon as you like prompted me to say like we're doing cult movies Mm -hmm. the film that immediately came to my mind um was a film that i saw in high school again this was like there's a common theme here that like these films when i first saw them just have like lasting sort of impression on me that i can't shake you know some people say like oh like i'll never see that film for the first time This is a film I feel like I watch with new eyes every single time I watch it. And I've seen this film. I've shown this at parties. um, I've dragged people in my dorm room into watch this, like sit down and watch (laughs) this movie. Um, And it's just one of those films that just like totally possessed me and really changed my philosophy on life. Um, It's just one of those really important films. And um, I wanted to get your like general reaction. Obviously, this is a podcast and you won't be able to like see it but like if if this is not the definition of oh. film like i don't know what is I so this is know. the opening <laughs> scene from my film that i've tattooed on my chest is, wow is the holy mountain uh from 1973 yeah. by chilean surrealist alejandro jodorowsky 
Now, real um, quick, Spencer, I just got to yeah. say, you might have the most badass film introduction on any podcast ever. I know. Because we don't have like a tattoo to show for any of our films. Yeah. So I wanted like your general reaction. Like I was saying like, well, should I show them before? It's like, no, I'll wait until I talk about the movie. <laughs> that was an excellent, excellent. Yeah. yeah. I know. So if that, that's it. not the definition of cult, I don't know what it is. So I had to include... <laughs> holy mountain love yeah it. yeah, no, it, we, yeah. So cool. love it so yeah um again this is like the fallacy of cult films that i picked like you could talk about this film and say okay yeah it's about this mexican like mystic holy man played by the director jordorowski himself mm-hmm. and he directs this christ-like figure through these trials and tribulations and are surrounded by representatives from different planets that come together to try to ascend this myth of what is the holy mountain um it's sort of like this sisyphusian task of like ascending the holy mountain is like it's more of an idea and a philosophy and not a physical place but nonetheless these learned men and women from different representatives of uh, these different planets will come together and try to find the ultimate truth which is supposedly at the top of the whole mountain so um this film is again another one of those trailers that i watched every single day until i could find a copy of this and when this i i actually did uh, end up getting this it came with a box set of jodorowsky um films and soundtracks because a lot of his films and this film the holy mountain included are um written directed edited the costumes total artistic control and the soundtrack provided by jodorowsky himself um so he is sort of like this like i don't know it's it's again it's unlike anything i've ever seen and and will not be i it just there's everything and then the holy mountain to me (laughs) obviously (laughs) so yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So this film is really cool. It was produced by Alan Klein, who is um, the Beatles manager. And another Beatles connection is that this film was financed largely by Yoko Ono and John Lennon. Um, John oh, Lennon and George Harrison saw his film El Topo, which is this crazy acid western that he made um, a few years before the Holy Mountain. Um, so George Harrison, John Lennon saw this film in New York and were just like, oh my God, this is like the best thing in the world. Obviously it is CL Topo also. Um, it's a great one. I like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. But so they put up a lot of the financing for this film and this film didn't even, this film is like three quarters of a million dollars to make this film. But it seems like, again, how did they make this film? I don't know. Under, I don't understand who like was brought together like it seems like a celestial film it's it's very um trippy very experimental very obviously influenced by psychedelics um Jodorowsky insisted the entire cast in just psilocybin mushrooms before they got into this to just basically get into the frame of mind um and it kind of relates to like Buffalo 66 where like the pure filmmaker is like, whatever happens, happens. We're going to capture it on film and that is going to be the experience. Um, so when you're talking about how Vincent Gallo treated Buffalo 66, I was thinking, yeah, Jodorowsky definitely like can't make a not Jodorowsky film. Like he could, <laughs> yeah. he could film yeah. like, and, and 
same with Bunuel and Scorsese, like a lot of the films we're talking about today are mm-hmm. absolutely embedded in auteur theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this film just talks about things that I was not equipped to like just handle. Um, this is before my experiences of psychedelics. This is before any reading of Eastern philosophy and mysticism and alchemy, like all these things are thrown in and it's just like a visual feast. Like that's the only way I can describe it. It's, it's a truly transcendental experience to like witness this film. And it's definitely one of probably the film that I can think of to say, have no preconceived notions at all. Like the best way to do it is just like, don't think about it and just like endure it because it is an endurance test. A lot of times, like there's things that are just like the the opening shot is this guy urinating on himself and like (laughs) ants, like on his face and zooming out. And he yeah and then you're just there like from the gate like let's go like we're 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 in it we're in it now so yeah i'm probably doing a terrible job describing this film no because i'm trying to like wrap my mind around how to describe but again with cult films in general it's almost like a fallacy to try to describe them yeah yeah it's like a Oh yeah, go for it, Eric. Go for it, Marissa. You're good. Oh no, <laughs> I was just gonna say, like, I think you're doing it. I mean, I've seen, I've seen um, the Holy Mountain, so I think you're describing it the way you can describe it because there's so there's so much compacted in that movie. Yeah, you can't just, talk yeah. about every single little scene. I did want to mention one scene though. Isn't there a scene where there's something coming out of someone's hand? Oh Is yeah. That not the same so there's these really short flashes, like during there's like a riot scene. Yeah. And um there's a flower that's growing in like the, the palm flower. of someone. And then mm-hmm. you don't see who, what character it is. It's just a picture of a hand mm-hmm. and a hand picking the flower and like yes. blue blood coming out. So yeah, yeah. very, very surreal, very painterly. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of things that inform this film again that like things about like um chilean dictatorships and there's a lot of war imagery in the film that that like you can dive as deep as you want to in a lot of these films we're talking about and they just seem like oh like it's it's difficult to describe it's like there's so many different levels and and you can choose to really embed yourself in the narrative and all of these sort of um you know, filmic, like, yeah. If you get too wrapped up in it being a film, then it will say like, oh yeah, that's that's a silly film. That's like a film for people who are stoned, whatever. But mm-hmm. there's so much more under the surface than what you're seeing is like, oh, this is a weird film. I got to get out of here. Well, what really stuck out to me is what you said about how if it's like, you know, you always approach it with the question, like how the hell did this get made? Like, right the miracle sometimes of filmmaking practice and like how it's it's celestial how well the stars align to make certain films happen and this sounds like one of those cases um another one that i mentioned earlier on a previous episode uh was i felt that way with donnie darko because it's like you know considering all the context you know and all the all the you know information that you can find and like all the things that you know about it you know as much as you know about the film practice like how does this even come about you know without 
the right amount of this, right amount of that, you know, the stars aligning for a film like this. So that in itself is something to just appreciate for a lot of films that people may not consider, you know, and so I'd, I'd encourage people to really consider like just how, you know, precious that is, you know, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's such a gift, such a gift. Um, what is it, Spencer? I wanted to say that, okay, so your, your connection to Jodorowsky is like with the Holy Mountain, right? Okay. Have you seen Santa Sangre? Yeah. Yep. Love oh, okay. It. I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm a bigger fan of that one. I just, I don't know why that movie connects to me on a very, very deep level, but that one were is... your parents circus entertainers <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i i think it had to do with like i'm born the same year as that came out or whatever okay. but like yeah i don't know something i watched that movie when i was really young actually and i just i have always thought about something i just bought the movie recently from severin um awesome. you know the, the 4k one that came out but like mm -hmm. that one to me is just like when I yeah when I think you think of a movie like how did this movie get made I think of that when I see like Santa Sangre I'm like how did this movie get made because there's so much packed into it the same applies mm -hmm. to like all of his work tr truthfully Jodorowsky yeah. like known for that it's like he puts so much surrealism and it's just yeah. like oh my god how did this guy do this yeah and yeah. it's uh, you mentioned Roy Anderson um mm -hmm. earlier in our talks like he's the same dude you kind of know what you're getting into going in mm -hmm. and you know that there's going to be okay, I need to be patient. I need to um, be okay with seeing suffering and heartache and sorrow and really blue murky tones like any of the filmmakers are talking about. Like, mm -hmm. And again, this all falls under, yeah, auteurship. But um, you kind of know, if, if, if you prepare yourself and you kind of, you know, what, what they say um, in like a lot of like, use of like effigens and like psychedelics is set and setting so if you have the intentions and and you know you're going to be with someone that you know whether you're watching a movie with someone i think that is is relatable and saying that if you go into it and saying like oh it's just like any other movie of course you're going to have a really negative sort of jarring aspect but if you yeah are watching Santa sangre after watching like okay i watched fondo elise um el topo holy mountain um i know a little bit about his stuff um trying to make a dune film like i know mm -hmm. a little bit about jodorowsky himself um it just is that much more enjoyable and you're able mm -hmm. to sort of embed yourself in that experience that much easier definitely so i'm assuming you have the box set yeah <laughs> <laughs> I listen to that soundtrack more than any other movie soundtrack ever. It's like that and oh, nice. the soundtrack for Under the Skin. Um, oh, have you guys seen that movie? No, no we wanted to see that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was my favorite movie that year by far. Mm. John Jonathan Glazer. Yeah, I love Birth yeah. too. I, are I, wild. I I bought that one recently. It's a DVD only. Only club um but yeah oh my god Jod Jodorowsky wow you could really say a lot about that guy he's like so much his work is just yeah it's so crazy yeah 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 he's like a respect. figure mm -hmm. that it's like he does not pull any punches he doesn't try to be anybody but I I feel like he physically cannot be anybody but himself he can't mm -hmm. make something that's not totally interested in this sort of like mystical interpretation of the natural world and that comes through in every single one of his pictures mm -hmm. um and yeah it's it's definitely what i seek out is experience experiential cinema and i mean it's like 
that awesome Lars von Trier quote, another kind of these filmmakers, where it's like a film should be like a rock in your shoe. You should be conscious of this film at all times. Like if you're sitting there, you know, thinking about, oh, what I got going on work today, you know, da, 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 da. like, are you really like engaging with the film? Mm-hmm. Is it really going to be that meaningful for you? Are you going to be able to recommend this and saying, what's the movie about? Ah, it's a guy and a girl on a gun, you know, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> you know, <laughs> three, three good shots and no bad ones. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's great. I never heard that uh, box quote. That's cool. Yeah. That's what stuck out to me. And in, in when we went to school, I think that's the one that stuck out to me always. I was like, really? Like, oh, okay. I'm super <laughs> underseen. We're talking about like, links in like film education mm-hmm. so mine is like golden age hollywood like anything pre-60s to like like right after like from like 30s to like 59 to me like american hollywood no idea no idea oh interesting okay. no idea yeah, yeah. yeah I'm like iffy on that i'm yeah. i'm i feel like i'm more versed in like 70s 80s films i don't that's yeah, just my same okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> for sure yeah i think I it mean, goes down yeah. to aesthetic quality too you know i agree with that yeah a lot of the a lot of the great like new hollywood directors that i care about you know they all came out in like the 70s so i'm just like cool that's my period that's i like <laughs> that's, yeah that's just what i, I like. mean there are definitely outliers like Night of the yeah. hunter and stuff like that or totally. stuff that you watch and have been told like again through formal film education through criterion collection like mm-hmm. this is something that's really cool or yeah you know yeah but that's a huge huge blank space in my mind for sure interesting yeah. this movie sounds crazy i actually dude really oh yeah you're it is the like... crazy movie. oh yeah i was gonna say <laughs> yeah. eric like i think this is right up your alley truthfully uh Jodorowsky? sounds like it yeah because you, I mean, I, you I, talk I, about like octavio paz and you know like, yeah, that kind of that, stuff so that sort of questioning that ex- existential questioning um and the philosophies of that that's right out of my alley i would love that um yeah he was the first person i ever heard talk about ego death or anything about like removing like these like these things that tether you to the natural world and yeah that's me in like 10th grade in high school i'm like what he's like <laughs> you can turn your shit into gold you are oh, shit you yeah, can be gold and i was like what yeah, that's like a yeah the holy mountain yeah that's watch good. watch the holy mountain first because that one will be like huh like it's gonna send you it's gonna send you on that trip no yeah. doubt all right i'm gonna have to check that out i'll get back and to then you watch santa sangre and then watch santa sangre because that I'm just really... name alone oh. sounds awesome oh my god <laughs> Eric, like it's so amazing god yeah ah love sweet but all right jodorowsky Eric. studies beginning yeah. tomorrow cool <laughs> so uh running out here with my with my films today i have terminal island from 1973 directed by stephanie rothman another fist pump from spencer this is great Dude, great picks <laughs> great picks Sweet. super soaked on terminal yeah. island <laughs> i i actually am fascinated by stephanie rothman because um i will say that in a in a woman's uh, filmmakers class i was introduced to her and knowing her story as a filmmaker just was something that I was like, okay, I, I absolutely love this this work. I love what she's done. Um, also a little bittersweet just because of her sort of um, exclusion when you when you consider her history from some of the other, you know, some of her peers, which I'll get into a little. Um, but 
a synopsis first. Uh, this film is uh, about, uh, so basically after the California abolishes the death penalty, uh, men and women convicted of murders are sentenced to live their life on San Bruno Island with absolutely no supplies, just the clothes on their back. The story kicks off when Carmen Sims arrives on the island and she quickly becomes sucked into a new society led by a tyrant that oppresses women to the benefit of men. And this is stars or this stars Barbara Lee, who's really like the uh, exploitation uh, film star that worked a lot with Stephanie Rothman on her films. Uh, Don Marshall, Phyllis, Phyllis Davis, Anna Hartman, who plays Phyllis, I'm sorry, who plays uh, Carmen Sims here. And this was written as a lot of her films were with her husband, uh, with Stephanie Rothman's husband, Charles S. Schwartz, who has connections with Roger Corman and working in the exploitation mm -hmm. scene. And that's really where they got their start. So <clears throat> the way this film is truly a cult is because of its re critical revival, right? Because at the time, uh, this film, like many exploitation films at the time, really weren't taken too critically seriously uh, in some respects, especially coming at the time from a real, we'll call it a boys club of Hollywood, which you know, certain directors of a certain gender uh, were given this priority of success over some others. Now, recently, much feminist study of, of filmmakers in the past have really brought this film back to life. The scholars Claire Johnson and Pam Cook actually really took a critical look at this film's agenda as a feminist film and as Rothman as a, as a, as a woman director, and it revitalized a lot of her films. And the backstory on how she basically started this was she got opportunities to direct under Roger Corman, who claims who she claims actually did not pay her a living wage. And in exchange, what he believed was she got paid through exposure, which, as we know, is sort of like the the way many filmmakers are being were are are given opportunities is through exploitation just like that the irony of making an exploitation film why right. <laughs> exploited you know mm -hmm. um so she later went on to join dimension pictures with charles S. schwartz the the thing that really sucks though is that both her and schwartz weren't allowed actually to have any creative control they were actually only allowed to make exploitation films and the worst part the crime as we all know uh what filmmakers always say you need is they didn't get final cut on any pictures, any other pictures, which is really just like a, a stab in the back for so many people. Um, and it's so interesting to note that after this, she really didn't have career success considering that she actually was working in, among other members of the, basically the new Hollywood era, the, the Brat Pack sort of, right? The uh, Francis Ford Coppola's, the Scorsese's, she didn't get that same that same success found as they did, um, which is why it's such a bittersweet watching this film because as an exploitation film, it's really quite wonderful. Uh, I'm really actually was taken aback by how thrilling this story was and and how no stone was really left unturned with this plot. I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, preconceptions about going into an exploitation film is is that it's a throwaway or that it's uh, that it's something that's going to rile you know rile people up in a certain way, but the great thing about having Stephanie Rothman as the director, a woman behind the camera, is the awareness of the certain tropes of exploitation films, right, and how she can 
sort of play with them a little better and and not give into the trappings of them, which she really doesn't do here. Um, I hate to say that I was surprised by this because I really shouldn't be, but what I loved is that it doesn't feel cheap. Like it doesn't feel like she's she's taking any corners here. It feels she brings so much integrity to this film, as do the actors that it it kind of goes above the level of what's one might consider an exploitation film in that way. Uh, and it's particularly clever in in the screenwriter's perspective. Uh, there's a really interesting opening bit and kind of a, a, a neat way that they give context to this film where they open it up. They open it up in this uh, editing room, you know, where there's like the director sitting there and the two editors. And you kind of get the sense that that this whole thing about California abolishing the death penalty and sending people to San Bruno is kind of like an entertainment, like, thing for the for the for for the public basically and basically they're looking at these headshots of people and they're giving everybody's kind of backstory of how they ended up in the in the island that's going to be on the island in the story and i thought that that was a pretty clever way of doing it and i think like a lot of stephanie rothman's work i think it's it's really is like a hidden gem among exploitation films that were popular during this time and I don't know if the social discourse was kind of where it needed to be at the time to really appreciate some of these films. But now I think in retrospect of a lot of the education, like the educational discourse around Rothman's work, I think we get kind of the appreciation she really deserves, even if she didn't get the same success that she found as her male peers. Um, It's really an admirable cult classic or cult driving classic. Um, And I think Rothman is definitely one of those directors that should be just as appreciated as some of her other peers for sure Um, and the great thing is you can stream this on youtube for free uh but you didn't hear that from me because i don't want (laughs) to i don't want to take it down um it's quite wonderful that you can see things that way now absolutely no that was a really cool pick um there's two things that um i thought were super interesting with that pick is that i think a lot of our choices um at least mine were cult films that developed from like a like a grassroots sort of fan base and weren't like critically acclaimed whereas Terminal Island kind of was rediscovered by academic writers and Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really cool and you find that a lot Um, nowadays I think with like cult programming whether it be like Alamo Drafthouse or you know um, there's a lot of really um, awesome like Coolidge in the Northeast and Beverly um, by you guys um, that cult programming and cult cinema and to find these sort of hidden gems or things that you're saying like um, like a terminal island probably wasn't terribly successful maybe it was it was probably billed on like a B picture at a drive-in and maybe just got paired with something so by default um, it got ticket sales but no, that's really cool yeah that um mm-hmm. It was yeah. sort of rediscovered from a feminist angle and point of view. Yeah, which is mm-hmm. what makes it so interesting that it's a cult, that, that that's what gives it its cult aspect. Um, and I would argue that maybe because it's an, a more academically celebrated, that it's still relatively uh, uh, not as, not as, um, like there's Cele- no- Celebrated yet? Celebrated yet, yeah. I think no. it's it definitely can have its, have some more time, you know, with, on a bigger platform for sure with audiences um so i would i would love to see that happen really and you know well i wonder if actually if they've showed it at the new beverly 
Like I'm it's really, cu- I, I'm really curious about that because they show a lot of exploitation films. Like they do a lot of mm-hmm. double features there, but I wonder if they've actually shown this one. Yeah, I, maybe. I, I you know, know, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Let's so, see. Sure, it. Yeah. I always think about. I'd be down um, to see that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, when you said Terminal Island, um, immediately another film that came to mind. Have you seen Punishment Park before? No. Oh, I've heard of that one. Dude, that movie is zany. Um, it's like a uh, kind of similar setting, but with like during like Vietnam draft dodging. And it's like a, one of the earliest like pseudo documentaries. Basically, like these people who are considered like... Um, like communists or like um, anti-war protesters they're sent to this place on the middle of the desert and they're saying you can either either confess to us or you can try your luck in punishment park which basically mm-hmm. like they run into the desert towards this goal which is like miles and miles away and the people that choose punishment park have to like hide in ruins and in the mountains from police that are pursuing them with live ammunition and like hunting them for sport. Oh, damn. Oh my gosh. It seems like wild many... flick. Is is that the one Peter Watkins? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of that one. Never seen yeah. it though. Awesome I, breed I... of just like super abrasive, like Aussie exploitation films. Oh, I, sure. I'm obsessed with like Ausploitation. <laughs> oh, that documentary is so good. Not oh, so, yeah, I have to, yeah. Like, have to not see. quite Hollywood, I think it's called. Have you seen oh, yeah. um, no, 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 I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it. That's but like, I've, I've just good watched stuff. some like some Aussie films. And I'm just like, yes, I love all these. Love. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. yeah. The, ra- the rabbit hole. Just keep going down it. So. I know. That it's exploitation. Never ends. Exploitation yeah. specifically is a huge rabbit hole to go down to. Yeah. And there's so there many filmmakers yeah. yet <laughs> to be discovered. Right. Yeah. Okay. Should I close it out with the craziest film? The craziest film. Uh, Okay, (laughs) let's see. All right, y'all. So uh, the last film of the day is Possession, 1981. Oh my God, I'm not going to say his name. (laughs) Do you know how to say his name, Spencer? Zulawski? Is it it Andre Zulawski? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't let the J fool you. <laughs> it's Andre. I know, but it's like the J. I'm just like all the. No, okay. Yeah, Andre Zulowski. Um, yeah. yeah. So Spencer. Yeah, you see. I'm so proud of you for this pick. Yeah. <laughs> you, said about you said it's the goat. Yeah. Go. Oh, I know. Let's talk about Isab- Isabella Johnny here and going batshit crazy here. I know yeah. she's. I love her here. Um, I've never seen someone swing groceries like it. Uh, is it the one, Johnny? <laughs> oh, we're swinging groceries in this film. That's, oh, that's what we're doing. Oh, you're swinging a lot of things in this film, actually. <laughs> <laughs> meat, yeah. meat grinder. and uh... Yeah. This film is so, like, pustule and just, like, a lot Fluids. of just, like, yeah, a lot of fluids. A lot of fluids and, and blood. Yeah, pustule. I like how you said pustule. Yeah. It's um, like a very, yeah biological film yeah <laughs> well yeah that one scene it's all about the fluids um during <laughs> this in the subway um but yeah um let me just read out like a little synopsis though uh for our listeners so um after anna reveals to her husband mark that she is having an affair she leaves him and their son mark is devastated and seeks out heinrich the man who cuckolded him only to receive a beating after a series of violent confrontations between mark and anna 
Mark hires a private investigator to follow her, Anna descends into madness, and it's soon clear that she is hiding a much bigger secret. Uh, <laughs> a much bigger secret. Yeah, da, da, da. that's kind of what the movie's about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, that's, I summed up the movie right there, and then everything yeah, else no, is added in, sure. because I, like, can't, you know, I can't really go into, like, all that stuff. But, I mean, I really want to go off, like, straight off, like, in Isabella Johnny's acting is fucking insane here. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, how she didn't probably do- my favorite female ever female performance ever. Yeah, seriously, like how she didn't win an award. I don't think she won any awards for this is like literally beyond me. No, um, the cons billboard rules uh, with that. Uh, the art. Oh, that, um, I forget. It's like one of the famous like Polish poster artists that did it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. Is Most slept one- on performance ever. Is it like the 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 snake like on her like yeah with the oh yeah, chest, yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 I know that one's so crazy um <laughs> you're like an innocent bystander in this film like <laughs> I know I'm not Dude. gonna try to talk about it without like spoiling it it's really hard actually because there's so much like twists and turns I'm just like what it really went there okay like we're going there with that <laughs> shit um, and there's an even better like random cast member not random but like you would not believe he's in this film. Um, who? the husband <laughs> oh yeah 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 yeah. i talked about like someone more secretive than that i was like no, no, i was no, like no, no, no. oh okay okay, okay. oh yeah, yeah 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 we have sam neil sam neil um yeah but sam neil is mark her her husband pretty awesome i know in the mouth of madness i just think of like <laughs> then her <laughs> he, ass. Just, he just does like crazy batshit roles Dude, too he has sneaky like awesome like crazy roles sam neil is one of those guys where if he's in the movie i'm like okay i'll, I'll watch this just like because sam <laughs> yeah. neil's in it oh yeah no for sure i think he's equally as great but i mean i don't know still like isabella johnny like she really like yeah she, it's unfair she, she yeah i know she no elevates this movie. this movie yeah <laughs> that's why i was like who um, no, I'm kidding. Sam, Sam Neil is amazing um, for sure. But I mean, okay, so let's talk about the camera work because the camera work, come on. Like, yeah. I mean, how, you know, once you see this movie, it's like, okay, every other camera work does it fails, like it just pales in comparison to this. Because it's like you have like some really, really odd shots that I think like they would never film this. Like, they're so, they're so chaotic handheld camera close-up like yeah a lot of handheld like uh yeah close-up work but even like that one scene where it's like she goes with mark to the cafe she meets up with was it mark at the cafe yeah they're both sitting on like opposite i'm just like Mm -hmm. what how the the scene shouldn't work but it Mm -hmm. somehow works and they like orchestrated like Oh my Tons God. of yeah. fast bender in this film for sure. Yeah, and um, then the, um, what is it when Mark is on the rocking chair and he's like rocking back and forth and the camera's yes. fucking like keeping up yeah. and I was just like, damn, this is awesome. Like, yeah, that yeah, that has always stood out to me. It's like the camera work is so odd and fucking chaotic. It's just it should not work, but it does. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. Do you have any favorite scenes in there, Spencer? I mean, yeah, groceries swinging. And uh, the, should I say, like, what's happening? I don't know. I mean, it's like, um, no. <laughs> I don't know. It's like kind of kind of like a birthing scene in a sense. Um, but it's like yeah. in a subway and it's obviously shot with like in the middle of a subway in Poland. Like, it's, it's crazy. It's, yeah. I mean, and, every shot in this film yeah. is insane. Um, and just, yeah, the... the 
I don't want to spoil it. I was just about I know, to say, it's like, like well, tiptoeing the special around, like... effects are really cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love the scene where she is, uh, um, like, running away or something, and mm-hmm. um, she is has, like, I think Mark, like, strikes her or something. She has, like, blood. She has blood dripping out. And the and... camera, and she, like, meets the camera, like, almost, like, confronting the viewer in such a yeah. visceral way. Yeah. And there's, like, we said like this film has a lot of fluid. She's like so just in, excuse me, enraged and just like spitting. Yeah. It's, I it's, feel like I like go like this when I watch. I'm like, oh. And, 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 she, and she's like doing this thing with like constantly with her hands and she's just like, I'm like that. And it's like, you're just yeah. like, kind of, can this end? Like she's like constantly, she's always doing something and grabbing her body in some regard and it makes you It's so, an extremely physical performance. Oh, it's like, all physical yeah let the let the record show that i don't think i've ever seen marissa that into <laughs> a recreation of a scene in a movie whoa what about that, the yeah. saxophone one though no that saxophone's nothing to that right uh, now. Okay, what you're okay. doing right well, now is like you're I into did, this I did, like a isabella johnny and like 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 embodying her right now yeah no you're, um, you're super enthusiastic about it so I'm i mean like, i like i can't whoa. even do like honestly like she goes there though with like some of like just the physical aspects it's just like how and um Dude, yeah. yeah this it's, is a film when people say like oh i've seen every horror movie i'm like watch this yeah no you haven't actually you haven't yeah you haven't seen this one but i don't know like like apparently there's a lot more if you really you can look at it and just be like okay that was like a horror film but if you really want to look at it there's also like a cold war message behind it too i don't know if you read that too without like about it spencer but it's just like there's yeah there's certain aspects about that that his job that he was like he was like some kind of like private investigator guy and then how that ties in with like the ending and the cold world the cold war and then like the berlin wall like all this is like all connected somehow so it's just like damn this is like actually really more layered than i thought so yeah i'm always it's a nice compliment to crash um as far (laughs) as like like what you're saying like that cold tone like there's Mm -hmm. something like obviously visually uh, like oppressive about like the berlin wall and like how the Mm -hmm. walls are like there's a lot of interiors that are like crumbling and this sort of like world is kind of crashing in on itself mm-hmm. but somehow the characters are like moving super freely and the camera follows them but it's almost like they're like ducking and dodging in this like post-war collapse and like eastern block oppression that's just like and it, at that point when you get to it, it's like it's no wonder why these characters like explode from the outside Mm -hmm. from inside like out every orifice like they just like (laughs) are just like exploding with like rage and just like expectations of uh a maternal figure and uh expectations of like what it means to be a successful father and like Mm -hmm. all of these roles that are coming to roost are just like this horrific event that Mm -hmm. materializes literally in a monster yeah so that is just like yeah one Mm -hmm. of the coolest things ever i love that picture of the artist working on like behind the scenes of like the the special effect can we talk Uh, about how awkward the fight scene is like that's like the (laughs) mood killer oh wait every time i try to show this film yeah people say like oh i'm out like that is like the mood killer (laughs) and i'm like okay it's silly sure but like just just what? Okay, be here yeah. for the weird. Can we unwrap that that fight scene because it's so bizarre? There's like sexualness to it, sexual tension. He was like, 
well, when you're making love and like he has this whole thing with his hands, Heinrich, and he's just like, he's like, oh, like that. And I'm just yeah. like, what? It's like, yeah, it's he's like, like, he's like attacking his chakras or something. Like, something he's just like, like the prototypical, like, like older, like sage academic who mm-hmm. will always defeat this Thai like proper guy because he's so in tune with the human body and, and the, the way of sexuality. A woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's yeah, just yeah. like that guy, like every person's nightmare that their <laughs> partner like embraces. Because like I can I cannot compete with that person because they're just on a different celestial plane than anything I can remotely bring to the table. Oh, I know. Yeah, no, I always get a kick out of that fight scene because it's just like he just. There's a lot of chopping. Yeah, there's a lot of chopping, and there's a lot of like, like up, like he's like so close to Mark, and I was just like, what's going on? But he like, you know, kicks Mark's ass. Like, there's no, there's no competition because this guy, like you said, he's on a different playing field. He's like spiritually, sexually, like evolved, and like Mark is, yeah, he's this normal dude. It's just like, yeah, what the fuck? Who are you, Heinrich? Like, yeah. (laughs) Um, and then the poor kid. I, I was think about this like the poor kid in this whole thing like he kind of gets the shit end of the stick if you really think about it that way yeah dude yeah. i love the scenes where there's just like papers and mess everywhere mm-hmm. like they're the the more the film like evolves it just like turns chaotic and even their settings we talked about a little bit with like the interior of like crumbling walls and stuff mm-hmm. even like the apartment in which um, the couple and the, the young boy live in, it's turned into like this rat's nest of just like papers and files and mm-hmm. phones off the hook. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh my God, like whatever's happening, like this, mm-hmm. this terrible like monstrosity that's materializing is affecting every single part of their life. Yeah. This film captures chaos unlike anything ever. Yeah, <laughs> basically. I mean, I guess Dead Ringers kind of comes close with like, you know, like, <laughs> but that's you know, still like, like very like chic and clean and like yeah, modern yeah, yeah. art. Yeah. Whereas this is just like, again, what planet was this from? Where did they find these people? These people are from an asylum. Like, please. I know. And then what I love is that like Anna, like she'll keep coming back though. She'll keep coming back to the apartment and like trying to be like, no like and she she like throughout the whole film she wears the same clothes she wears the same dress like that mm-hmm. never changes all dirty and ratty but she like keeps coming back she's like no and she gets like the meat grinder she starts making food when it's like everything else is like so chaos yeah. and chaotic yeah. and but yeah there's this whole thing about also like you could talk about like also love and their relationship and like when the whole thing with like the the knife the meat grinder kind of knife she's mm-hmm. like and he does it too like he starts cutting himself and like she's like it doesn't hurt and he's like no it doesn't so it's just like these people are so far gone now (laughs) oh yeah yeah yeah. it's definitely like a point where it's just like yeah it's just beyond traditional narratives and it's getting somewhere Mm -hmm. way more philosophical than i think traditional horror films go Mm -hmm. um i mean i think the best ones sort of like peck at that uh, mm-hmm. psychological element and get really deep into like philosophical like who are the roles of these people when these mm-hmm. roles are subverted or changed mm-hmm. um then like horror ensues so like tradition minus structure equals horror so yeah these people can't function in something that is like this surrealist nightmare so mm-hmm. they themselves try to like become animalistic and these like nightmarish figures as well 
Yeah, because it's like it's easier to operate that way, like than trying to in the beginning where when Mark was just like so normal and it's like his life no longer like that. (laughs) You know, all the structure out the door. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved how it showed that it's like a whole one eighty. But yeah, I don't know with the. Are you Eric, still down, Eric? Eric? Yeah, just, Eric, what do you think? I, I feel like I just witnessed a murder. Um, <laughs> now I need to talk about it. No, um, no, Jesus, this sounds amazing. I don't know how to say it, but an experience nonetheless. So you bet I'm watching this one. <laughs> I'm going to watch you. this yeah, one. It's one well, of it's, you make it sound like a, your old life. You, you definitely make it sound like a must see, like, and I don't need uh, no hyperbole there, like a literal must see. So. Yeah, no, you'll definitely like see your life like in two parts, like pre-possession and post-possession. <laughs> That's what I say. Yeah. What did I tell you, Eric? I was like, this movie will literally change you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't truly... know if I'm ready to be changed. No, I'm just kidding. I know. Are you? You're going to have to this is, no... <laughs> this is no small task watching Seriously. this film. Yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah, but I don't know, Spencer. Wouldn't you say that Zulaski does not get the love and attention he he deserves? Um, I mean, I, I personally don't think so. Mm, yeah, no, definitely not on like a large scale. I mean, I feel like a lot of like Eastern block filmmakers, like the only one that comes to mind is like Annika, like the Austrian filmmaker. Like mm-hmm. he's like well regarded, and um, Roy Anderson too. Like some mm-hmm. of the austrian filmmakers are but a lot of polish cinema is like incredible and like otherworldly and like just is is hard to place in like a western like film canon and like a mind um i think on silver globe like toured a little bit i know it played at um the dryden theater in rochester mm-hmm. when i was going to school mm-hmm. the dryden theater is the theater um attached to uh george eastman house and museum um so mm-hmm. i was able to see it in a theater and it still just blew everyone's mind it just is one of those films that it's just like yeah you gotta see it to believe it and i i've only seen those two zelowski films but i can just assume his stuff is just like yeah he can't not make that kind of film yeah um, something that's incredibly um, visceral and engaging and sort of just says like okay we're going like we're on this ride together like we Lost got two wall. and a half hours to like blow each other's minds let's do this so yeah no I know um what is it vinegar syndrome um because it seems like Zulaski's movies are kind of hard to come by so it's like vinegar syndrome I think has a lot of his movies available oh, on cool. there so yeah I just ordered possession it hasn't arrived but um it is on archive.org but yeah like I I also ordered um, the most important thing, love. I think I told you that one, okay. Spencer. That yeah. like uh, that one is, um, yeah. Someone, uh, someone on Instagram was like, "It's a more grounded version of possession," and I was like, "All right, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what that means, and we'll we'll see we'll see how that is." Um, but so yeah, anything ever made? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah, I know. So yeah, I want to see that one, but I want to see more cool. of his work. I want to see that one that you said yeah. um, on the Silver Globe. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I guess uh, I recommend to watch this one and I recommend more Zulowski. Thanks for listening to our show today. And a very big thank you to Spencer from Endangered Streaming for joining us on this journey into the world of cult films. Go follow Spencer's service on Instagram at Endangered Streaming so you can keep up with all the films that will be leaving streaming services in the future.
As always, if you like what you heard, please leave us a rating and a review. They help us out a ton. And keep up with us on social media at Film Chatter Pod. We'll see you next time.